The Water Values Podcast, Session 77. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. We have another great podcast for you today, but let's go over a few things first. Initially, a bug in the plugin that allows the podcast to be played directly from the website caused that capability to be down for a while. I know there's a lot of you who listen to the podcast that way, so I'm sorry that uh, that you had to go without for a while. Um, but that's just one of those things that happens in the world of the internet, so... Uh, Second, I want to say thank you for those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. I really appreciate that. And if you haven't done so, please consider giving me a rating and review on iTunes. It's it's a great way to help others uh, discover the Water Values podcast. Next, I'm going to change the survey, the listener survey on the website in the next couple of weeks. So if you have topics or interviewees you'd like to learn more about, please take less than a minute to go and complete that survey online, and I'll do my best to get the topic or the interviewee uh, you've identified and uh, do a podcast on that. That really helps me figure out what exactly it is that you guys want to hear. Now on to today's podcast. Uh, This is another uh, quasi-listener-requested podcast. And today we're going to be looking at the different shades of prior appropriation and water rights as they vary from state to state. Spencer Williams of Ponderosa Advisors is our guest today, and he does a great job identifying differences and similarities in water rights systems among several prior appropriation states and one hybrid prior appropriation-riparian water rights system. It's a fascinating topic uh, wherein he also uh, talks about the water sage mapping tool that Ponderosa Advisors has and all the functionalities uh, for figuring water rights issues out that that, that uh, water sage mapping tool has. So it's, this is going to be a fascinating podcast. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Spencer, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Hey, to start off, uh, tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water. No, absolutely. Um, I am an attorney by trade, licensed in Colorado. Uh, I uh, got into law with an interest in water and knew that's what I wanted to do, but it actually started, uh, if you can believe it, I was a whitewater rafting guide on the Arkansas River here in Colorado, and uh, I picked up on one detail that clued me into the water rights world, and that was that on August 15th of every year, the flow went from 750 CFS uh, consistently, and then August 15th every year it dropped off to, to what I know now is native flow, and, and that's a whole different story, but, um, but it gave me a sense that water management was a thing in Colorado, and, uh, and then I learned quickly that water rights was a thing. So as a, as a young uh, law student, I, I looked out into the world and said, that seems interesting to me, and I want to find out what it's about. Cool. Now, what are you doing with your law degree? Yeah, uh, I was in private. I actually started working for the state of Colorado with the Water Conservation Board, um, and then I spent uh, a couple years in private practice doing strictly water rights work. And uh, in the uh, last year, I have transitioned kind of all of that subject matter expertise into working with Ponderous Advisors. So, um, you know, from an overview, we are a market analytics firm leveraging software tools to better understand uh, 
traditionally the energy markets, but we have a real new focus to understand uh, water markets that exist, and, uh, and and we're doing fun things with water data and, and through our water search platform that I'm sure we'll talk about uh, later. Sure. So, uh, tell us a little about where where this water data where where are you collecting the water data, and uh, I, let's just start there. Where are you collecting the water data? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we rely uh, predominantly on publicly available sources. Uh, the states themselves have taken on a role as being clearinghouses for. Uh, for data related to water use. And that's uh, primarily for their purpose and responsibility to administer water rights. Um, you know, Colorado, for instance, one of the states we work in does a great job. Uh, and that's um, largely uh, reflects the fact that administration is a, is a critical function here, that there's a large administrative body that works to make sure the prior appropriation system um, is... Uh, is administered uh, in an orderly way. Um, so we have the benefit of all of this collected data. Um, we take that, we take some federal data sources and some state and local uh, data sources, mostly on the county level, um, and integrate that into a non-technical usable tool. Okay, and is this is this you know national? Is it Colorado specific? I mean, where? What's your what's your geographic scope? No, absolutely. We uh, we have platforms now for Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, and Texas. Uh, our primary focus is um, the western United States, where there is a water supply pinch of some kind, uh, and um, the prior appropriation states, uh, or states that have some form of a prior appropriation water rights regulation system. Sure, and I think it's interesting you're, you, you've, you've talked about prior appropriation and it's the various states, because I think it differs between the states, and we can get into that, uh, but a little more on on just how you're how you're obtaining the information i mean uh can can you get us give us a little more granular look at you know how how are you integrating all this information where you're gathering it from sometimes county level sites federal sites all this stuff and you just you you pluck that information and then you plug it into your software system and so sure well we can walk you through what we do um you know again colorado is a good example uh colorado uh does a great job about accumulating mass amounts of data uh, and, and on the water professional side, there are many that have become really good at using and accessing that data. Uh, but when you start moving into non-technical users that either don't have a GIS, uh, a coding, or a data background, to reach the same level of insight is really challenging. So we, we take all of those data points, uh, we, we retrieve them automatically. Colorado's got a great setup through the Colorado Information Marketplace where we can set up automatic retrievals to keep that data uh, constantly up to date. Um, so those run on a weekly basis, sometimes even on a daily basis, and, uh, and they're aggregated together in our, in our databases at Ponderosa. From there, we um, have a number of uh, basically rules that we run all of this data through. And, and the purpose of these rules is to make sure that all of the data can interact with each other. So if I'm looking at diversion records or irrigated acreage or certain well permits, uh, I want to know maybe how that well permit relates to an adjudicated water right. And so by running all of these rules on the data, we can make sure we're connecting all the dots. Um, when those dots are connected, we can then write really easy to use um, filtering queries, search capabilities, um, basically uh, um, 
easy user, inter user interface uh, features that let everyone get the same kind of comprehensive level of data um, without having to, you know, get an extra degree. Okay, so you're pulling all this information. Uh, it sounds to me like you're you're getting records from from diversions, from uh, I assume rainfall records. So we we do um, we have stream gauge data. So that is uh, um, water uh, flows in natural uh, courses, but also in man-made. So that's real-time flow for ditches, canals, um, other infrastructure like that. Uh, it's the locations of points of diversion. It's infrastructure. It is diversion records, actually. Um, places of use for those water rights, all the approved uses, um, the amounts. You know, I, I, I always, you know, we're talking about water rights, and we'll get to this, but but we're talking about property rights, and and land is really easy to conceptualize as a property right because you have boundaries, and in a typical lot, you have four of them, and you're either in and you're out, and everything inside is in, and everything outside is out. You know, water gets more complex. Um, it's a property right, and it has its own boundaries as well. Uh, what's hard is conceptualizing and communicating those boundaries, and so as we aggregate that data, we try to give a clearer perspective on on what are the boundaries of that water right it's bounded by its approved uses it's bounded by its approved rate of flow or volume um, it's bounded by its place of use and we want a really quick way for someone to to uh, kind of pull the curtain back and see those boundaries and understand them quickly sure now who's going to use the the information that you've got I mean who who's going to come out and say you know I need to find out about water right X I mean sure you know, we've been really surprised because our users uh, have really been as diverse as water users are. Um, so we have federal, state, and local government users. Um, uh, you know, on the federal side, it is um, having the ability to review water rights information for other functions, such as, you know, um, conservation lending programs for upgrading irrigation equipment um, and confirming water rights. Um, you know, on the state and local government levels, uh, it's a little bit easier. You know, states uh, own massive amounts of real estate uh, and have to manage water rights, oftentimes um, with a specific mission or purpose. Uh, and from an asset management perspective, they need a really good tool to do that. When you come down to the local perspective, those are your water providers. Um, they're relying on massive and very valuable water rights portfolios. You know, in, in a lot of our states, um, those users... Uh, need to follow other uh, water rights activity very carefully. You know, I, I always joked, especially when I was practicing water law, that, that you know, fighting about uh, water is like putting, a, you know, a clear 10-gallon bucket in front of 15 people, telling them they each own a proportional interest in that bucket, and then telling them to all get exactly their portion out and nothing more. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, when that's the case, everyone is very careful. Everybody's watching their boundaries very closely and, and ensuring that no one else's actions will impact theirs. And therefore, having a quick-to-use, easy-to-conceptualize tool to do it uh, really eases that process, um, but also brings transparency to it uh, so that lots of folks from lots of different backgrounds can be a part of that conversation. Sure. Now, the, the, the person who gets that information, how, how are they going to Use the, your use that tool to, as you say, kind of take exactly their share and monitor. Are, are people using it to figure out what their share is, or are they using out the using it to make sure that uh, the other guys aren't taking too much? You know, they're they're using it. Um, 
most of our kind of high-level clients that have a large water rights portfolio, they're the experts on their portfolio. Uh, but what's always important is monitoring how their portfolio is interacting with other water rights activity. And, and you know, it's it's not like you can just categorize water into these broad broad uh, categories. It, it's it's more minute. So. When you're looking at other activity in the basin, you need to be able to drill down on all that other information um, because someone's upstream use obviously uh, will have an impact on your downstream use. Um, and, and the way and the complexity that, that's happened in um, water management in Colorado specifically, you know, we're, we're talking uh, complex augmentation plans and exchanges and um, it's affecting large reaches of river. It's those kind of things that you know, whether you're, they're a part of managing your own portfolio. Once again, we're all staring at the same bucket and saying, how do I get my piece out? And so to do that effectively, you've got to understand everyone else's pieces as well. Sure. Uh, you also mentioned that you're in multiple states. Yeah. Could you, uh, let's talk about how how the doctrine of prior appropriation kind of differs. Sure. Uh, amongst the states that at least you're you're collecting data from, so yeah. that would be Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and Texas, I believe. So, sure. could you just kind of give us a real quick thumbnail on on how how those systems of prior appropriation are different? Sure. You know, I would say that for Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado, the fundamental is the same. Um, the prior appropriation doctrine doctrine is first in time, first in right. You know, you showed up um, on the stream system first. You put water to beneficial use, uh, and, and your right is better than all junior rights. You divert to the exclusion of all junior rights. Uh, and that principle is true in Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. Now, those three states have, have gone about the way they will administer that system in different ways. Um, and somebody's going to check my facts on this, but my understanding is that the person who founded the Wyoming system was a former state engineer in Colorado. Um, somebody can write a comment or something and say that I'm wrong on that. But, but it, my understanding is it was a reaction to Colorado, and therefore they established uh, a system that was uh, entirely controlled by a regulatory agency. Uh, so unlike Colorado where we have our water courts, it's a judicial process to adjudicate a water right, change a water right. They have a regulatory system that um, achieves uh, many of the same results, perhaps with a little bit more flexibility. You know, the other thing you have to consider when you compare Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming is, is that, you know, there are half a million people in Wyoming, uh, and there are, what, about 5 million people in Colorado with another 5 million expected in the next 50 years. So we just have different problems. And Montana, you know, is also, uh, although Montana's growing a lot, um, they haven't felt the same pressures. So, and that brings to light a big difference in Montana and Colorado. Um, you know, Colorado is actively administered. The state engineer's office uh, has, has, you know, uh, many, many, many employees, um, down to your water commissioners, your division engineers, uh, tons of technical staff. And really, the major purpose is to administer prior appropriation, make sure that people are diverting according to their decrees um, in priority. Um, now, they've expanded to do a lot of different things, uh, but that's been very important in Colorado uh, um, to administer just the large amount of water rights with very important uses that exist. You know, uh, Montana, which traditionally has been very rural, very agricultural, uh, doesn't, to date, has not had that direct administrative 
um, uh, arm of the government. Now, now they're getting towards that as their population does grow. Um, but uh, for years, if you actually wanted to enforce your water right, you had to file, you know, uh, a case in district court. Uh, so it's not like you know in Colorado where you call the water commissioner and an hour later uh, the river's being administered to deliver the water that you're entitled to. In Montana, you know, file a lawsuit, and you and I both know how long that can take. <laughs> um, now, like I said, that is changing, but but it gives a different perspective on on uh, how uh, prior appropriation has been used in different settings. Uh, but that that does hold true. That that key element, first in time, first in right, holds true in all those states. Um, Texas is the outlier, and I'm happy to talk about that too. Yeah, I, I, I would just note um, real quick. It's it's interesting how you said the kind of the infrastructure holding up or supporting the system in Colorado is so much more robust. And that it's directly related to population is from, is, is kind of what I'm getting. You know, that, that's my perspective at least. And there might be other opinions out there, but um, you know, I think it's a fascinating time to live on the front range. Um, we live in a, in a place of, you know, great economic growth and development, great population growth. that's tied to that in a resource restricted area. Uh, and, you know, the hopeful side of me says that, that we will see great innovation in, in how to grow smart cities, smart communities. Um, but I think if we look at our history, too, we see that, that, that we've had to deal with that as the Front Range has grown through different periods. And the water rights laws have changed to reflect that. I, the laws haven't changed, but, but they have developed uh, and they've broadened to reflect um, really those competing needs. Um, and, and, you know, the South Plate Basin is a great example of, of a place where, where you have a really comprehensive picture of competing needs for a limited resource. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's talk about Texas. Yeah. How, how is Texas different from those other three prior, other three prior appropriation states you mentioned? Sure. Uh, well, Texas is, um, is a hybrid prior appropriation riparian state. Um, so what that means, uh, you know, to contrast to Colorado, if you buy land in Colorado, uh, and to many a Texan's frustration that they buy land in Colorado, and they realize that unlike in Texas, you can't, if you have a, a stream running through your property, you can't just go and use that water. Um, and, and that's not true in Texas. If you have a body of water uh, with, with certain limitations, when you reach certain amounts withdrawal, you have a riparian right to use, uh, to use that water. Um, you know, and, and, you know, when we go further east, the, the standard has typically been you can't infringe upon um, a downstream user's um, riparian right to use that water. Uh, and, and there's some case law that developed basically with mill owners in highly industrialized areas in the northeast um, that kind of established these principles, but frankly, it just was never a problem. And in Texas, you know, it, it's similar. For most of your typical on-property water uses, that works. And if it doesn't, then you have a right of action against the uh, upstream user that's harming you, and you can go to district court, and you can solve it there. Um, Texas, you know, is kind of on the border. It straddles kind of this west, uh, kind of western U.S. philosophy and this eastern philosophy. And so for a long time, there's been an opportunity to appropriate an, uh, a prior appropriation based right in Texas as well. Um, it's interesting, though, there's only about, uh, I think, 3,000 of those rights in Texas, and that's primarily for diversions of a certain size, um, 
where you're seeking some protection of that diversion, you can go through the regulatory agencies in Colorado and establish a water right. It's got a priority date, um, and uh, and it's got those boundaries and components uh, that you would think of in prior appropriation. The interesting thing to consider is that, from my understanding, uh, there's only been one uh, priority call in Texas to date, uh, and, and that's currently being litigated um, through the Texas court system. Um, interesting situation. Dow Chemical owns a bunch of senior rights down on the Gulf, uh, and there are um, farmers and municipal and industrial uses all upstream, and um, Dow made a priority call during their last droughts, and there was a huge question of, well, does can we curtail domestic or, or municipal or industrial uses? What about power generation? You know, in, in Colorado, technically speaking, the answer is yes. I mean, that's why people in those businesses spend a lot of money on a really great water rights portfolio. Um, but they're working through what that means in Texas. Uh, you know, the other piece of Texas uh, is really that groundwater is king. And... Um, and groundwater has been preserved as a as a strict private property right, strict rule of capture in Texas, very much like Texas, um, to say that if you drill a well on your land, you just pump that thing until you can't pump anymore. Uh, there's some local control in the form of groundwater conservation districts um, that that have placed greater limitations on it, but but legally speaking, it really is the rule of capture, uh, and that's made groundwater a really uh, an area of great focus in Texas with conflict arising and the creation of regulating districts uh, and, and things like that. Sure. And, and I know that you, we haven't really talked about California, but is, is the Texas water law, is that similar to what California has, are, are, is Texas heading for a California like problem where, because groundwater is not tied to surface water? You know, I, I think uh, my perspective, and this would be my personal perspective, uh, would be that Texas won't see the same kind of problems, um, uh, at least in the near future. Um, and um, because Texas is thinking about it. I, you know, we, we've been in tune with conversations even now that are talking about how do we connect groundwater and surface water hydrology to make sure that our systems are operating in conjunction uh, and in a way that makes scientific sense. Um, but I don't think Texas ha- has potentially seen the stress yet to really make major problems in that area. California has obviously seen the stress. I mean, the drought of the last several years uh, ha- has shown um, you know, that, that they live in a world where groundwater and surface water readily interact, uh, but they haven't really been um, paying attention to that. Or if they've not been paying attention, if they've been paying attention, then they haven't been regulating it, um, which is something we're very used to in Colorado. Um, uh, so, I th- so I think California, we'll see it go a different way. You know, I, I see the major difference really um, as matters of public trust in California, you know, and, and uh, that's a big deal in Colorado. Um, but I see one of the major differences is that I, I don't see happening in Texas is that um, through the public trust doctrine, uh, the government in California has has the ability, and some would argue the responsibility, to um, t- to protect the waters of the state for all of its users. So that's why you see things in California like a 25% mandatory reduction. Um, that's why you see a lot of government activity to protect endangered species flows and things like that. Um, that's because they have that right under their public trust authority. Um, the government doesn't have that that same right in Colorado or Texas, and it would be a major undertaking to get there. So you so you see 
the development take place in very different ways by watching just those different approaches to, to, to who's responsible for water getting to all the right people. Sure. Um, let's talk about the, I want to circle back to, to Ponderosa and uh, talk about the, the program you have. It's called Water Sage. So can you t- talk about the, the actual software program that's, that is Water Sage? I think you've kind of alluded to it earlier, uh, but, but let's, let's call it what it is. And tell us a little bit about WaterSage. Yeah. So WaterSage is an online um, map-based information platform, is what we call it. Um, you, you know, I a comparison might be Google Maps, although, although uh, we let you interact with data in a really, um, I say, tangible way. Um, you know, you, you log into WaterSage, and uh, satellite image pops up um, that you can scroll in, scroll out. Uh, you have a number of informational layers that you can put on and off the map that give you um, basic geographic boundaries, um, regulatory enforcement areas, things of that nature. Uh, but but the real magic happens in our data sets themselves, and, and that's the ability to um, search for um, structures that have water rights associated with them, for well permits, and for land parcels. Uh, in a number of different ways based on a number of different attributes and then to be able to work with that data um, a really in a really in-depth way um, you know so for instance uh, the first thing that you can do in water sage is is drag the mouse and draw a 16 square mile box and this is in any of our states and immediately pull back any of the information within that box that's that's related to groundwater rights surface water rights or land parcels um, and that's a really great tool. We have a lot of real estate users, uh, real estate clients, and um, they they really want to understand water. They want to be able to visualize water, and it's important to their clients too. Um, and traditionally, just to even get that first step, they, they've had to uh, expend quite a bit of, of of their resources to build custom projects. Uh, and with WaterSage, it's just a click away. Um, you know, you take it away from that simple search, and we can do things like search an entire stream basin. Uh, and, and from an entire stream basin search, we can start to filter that data to say, what are the most senior water rights on the South Platte? What are the most junior? Uh, where are the concentrations of very senior irrigation rights, of very senior municipal rights? We can do all those things in Water Sage. Um, uh, and at the same time, for each of those structures and rights, uh, focus in on very detailed information, those boundaries, like I was talking about. Um, so, so that's what Water Sage is. It's not a very complex um, concept, um, but it's an easy, non-technical way to get the best available information on water rights and land now. Okay, and so what you mentioned things like uh, uh, senior water rights, junior water rights, yeah. concentrations of municipal. Uh, why is all that stuff important? I mean, I, I guess we can understand why senior and junior is, but what, why would the concentration of municipal or ag or some type of use be important? Uh, sure. Uh, you know, it, de- it depends on the user. Um, there, there are certainly uh, entities out there, be it uh, municipalities or in real estate, that are actively looking for um, either new water supply or, um, or to own property with valuable water rights. And this really goes to understanding um, the markets that exist for these things. And so, um, you know, in Colorado right now, uh, I believe it's still about 80% of all water rights are held in agriculture. Uh, Whereas 
all of the uh, demand is growing in municipal use. So um, this is a somewhat of a controversial topic, but uh, over the last several uh, years, uh, an easy way to procure water supply is to buy irrigated agriculture and to change those water rights for municipal use. Uh, so, um, so there are these certain types of water rights that people become interested in. You know, we work with the conservation community for the exact same reason. Um, and because they're looking to protect those agricultural water rights, they're looking uh, to understand where they are and to uh, highlight their um, areas of, of greatest interest for conservation work based on conserving high-value irrigation water rights along with land. Uh, so it's being able to focus what you're looking for um, based on your particular use. And I would, I, w- I would guess that this tool would be pretty powerful to, for a conservation group to really look at in-stream flows and make sure that, you know, one section is not being uh, under, you know, there's, it's, you know, repeatedly uh, being under flows. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we have a, we, we've impl- implemented some really great new tools, you know, right now in WaterSage, you, you can first look up all the in-stream flow water rights uh, and you can see those um, on the map and you can access the detailed information. So how much flow, uh, at what priority date, uh, you know, um, at what reach, at what time of year. Uh, we added uh, all of this uh, USGS and Division of Water Resources stream gauge data. So now, in real time, you can be tracking the actual flows in that area and flows of diversions with upstream and downstream so if you're monitoring for in-stream flow use, you know both what you're allowed uh, and you know it's actually present. And you can go a step further. We have tools to analyze a water rights priority relative to the other water rights in its area. So if you see an upstream diversion sweeping the river to the detriment of the in-stream flow in water sage, you can immediately compare the priority of the upstream right to the in-stream flow and say, well, is that in priority? Are they sweeping the river in priority, or is that a priority, and should the in-stream flow place a call? Hmm. Um, very interesting stuff. Now, uh, you said something interesting, I, I, and I don't know that we've actually picked up on this, but uh, it can show you real-time, and it can show you historical, and so you can, pick a, you can pick a date, and you figure out what the flows are at that time of year. So we've, we've taken um, subsets of data. So you can see the present year's diversion records um, graphically. So, so we, uh, our, our background is in energy. So we, we took a cue from some of the uh, graphing uh, visualizations from the commodities world and are using them for streamflow. Um, so you can see the current year's flow graphically, and then you can pile onto that same graph um, the previous five water years, a 10-year maximum and minimum, and a 10-year average. So, um, so for instance, you know, 2012 uh, was a, uh, from my recollection, it was a pretty dry year. And so in that five-year range, you can see, well, how did the water right perform in, in, uh, in a dry year? Uh, but you can also look at 2013, right, and look at the floods on the front range and see, well, what does is, what is max discharge look like here? Yeah. Um, and then we also have 15-minute weekly data. So for the previous week, you'll be able to see in 15-minute time steps that very specific flow information. Wow, pretty granular. Um, well, Spencer, you've been absolutely fantastic coming in and talking to us about uh, some water rights issues, about the the program, the water sage program you've got. 
Uh, really appreciate your time. For those who want to find out more about you and Ponderosa Advisors and, and WaterSage, where can they go to get that information? Yeah, the, the best place is watersage.com. That's our website, and, uh, and there's a lot of great information there uh, to understand what WaterSage does. To understand at a higher level what we do at Ponderosa, you can go to ponderosa-advisors.com. Uh, it's a great place to, to, to see what we're up to. Cool. Well, Spencer, again, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Spencer Williams of Ponderosa Advisors, a terrific guy that I got to know through the Colorado Water Congress and its pond committee while I was in Denver. Well, here are a couple of takeaways. First, I just note how hard it is to wrap your mind around water rights as a property right. You know, Spencer's example of the clear bucket uh, filled with water and people owning a proportional interest in that bucket um, really, really struck a chord. I think, you know, real estate rights, in contrast, are much easier to figure out. You know, there's, there's more certainty because that property isn't fluid. It's not a liquid. It's not moving around. So you can, you can easily wrap your minds around the four corners of, of property boundaries and the rights that are associated with them. It's a lot harder with water. Um, and that difficulty in defining those clear and exact boundaries for water rights, I think, in a lot of ways, gives rise to my second takeaway. And let me preface this second takeaway by saying that as an undergrad, I took a course in law and economics with a fantastic economics professor, Bert Barreto, uh, who has since moved on from Wabash College to uh, Wabash's arch rival, DePaul University. Uh, But he's still a fantastic professor, nevertheless. Um, And the theme of that class, uh, that law and economics class, was that economics molds how laws are shaped and construed Uh, and how they develop. And I think that if you listen closely to Spencer in this podcast, you can see how economics is impacting how prior appropriation regimes have developed. As you heard Spencer say, the hard and soft infrastructure supporting Colorado's prior appropriation doctrine is significant in terms of both the hard assets and the human capital involved. Uh, And this observation about Colorado system also comes through with Justice Hobbs back in podcast 70, uh, thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 70. You can find that, the show notes for that one. Uh, And, and, you know, and then compare and contrast Colorado system with Wyoming and Montana. You know, these two latter states are significantly less populated than Colorado. And accordingly, they don't have quite the administrative infrastructure supporting their respective doctrines of prior appropriation and how they've set those up. Um, You know, we can carry this further by looking at the riparian system Spencer mentioned in the Northeast uh, with Riverside Mills having riparian rights to the water and the rivers on which they were situated. You know, in, in these examples, the economics of water dictated how the system was set up in Colorado because of the greater economic pressures that come with the larger population in a resource scarce region there's a more complex system of prior appropriation. And while in the Northeast, uh, which doesn't necessarily have a resource scarcity problem, um, those riparian rights existed, uh, even though, it, you know, f- just for the rare circumstances when uh, getting the actual flows to turn the mills and things like that might have been a problem. But it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a scarcity-driven um, regime. I think this is just fascinating stuff, and I plan on doing an interview with someone at some point who can speak on the convergence of eastern and western U.S. water law uh, and bring some of these issues into sharper focus. Uh, But those are my takeaways for the the talk with Spencer, who, again, was absolutely fantastic. Um, 
Well, you can check out the show notes for this show at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 77. Please leave a comment there, or you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And please do me a favor, as I asked at the top of the show, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast directory on which you listen to the show. It's a great way for other people to find out about the podcast. And also, uh, please sign up for the Water Values newsletter on thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.